Let us pray. Almighty God, now we have heard your word read. And we pray for your spirit to be present among us in a way that transforms us, even this day, to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're concluding our series on this little letter to the Ephesian church this week and remembering um, where it was in the place of that Eastern Mediterranean world. They were such a small band of believers. Right down the street, probably from the home where they probably met, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of the great god Artemis. People came from all over the known world to worship and to sacrifice the god Artemis, which was there in Ephesus as well. But in this little home, just a short walk away from that temple, was a small group of women and men who followed Jesus. We are heirs to the ones who gathered in that room 2,000 years ago. Paul encourages and reminds them Above all else, he says, as he closes his letter, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Be strong in the Lord, he says. So what? Why would he tell them that? So that they could stand. In the face of all the opposition and pressure mounting around them, that they could stand strongly, to stand firmly as the people that God had called and created them to be. Paul does not enjoin them to fight. He enjoins them to stand in the place where they are. Three more times in this one short passage, he says, stand, stand firm. And on this Sunday, when we remember so many that have gone before us, it is very appropriate that we recall those who have stood in line, to stood the line for the cause of Jesus Christ. Remember those who were martyred from the Colosseum in the times of Rome to those who were martyred on the beaches of North Africa not that long ago, to those who are persecuted even to this day in places like China and Afghanistan and around the world. We remember those who have gone before who maybe didn't lay down their lives per se. They weren't killed for their faith, but they suffered for it as they walked this earth. Remember Martin Luther, the German reformer, who in 1517 nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg as a measure of protest against the evil that he saw not in the world, but in the church. Four years later, Luther was called to account for his descent, but he had only become more convinced in the word of God and in the truth of the word of God and what he was doing in those days. He had been converted in some sense to grace by Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works. It changed his life and he couldn't turn around. When he was called to the Diet of Worms and many of his books that he had written were laid out in front of him by the Pope and others leaders in the church. And he was given the opportunity to recant Luther's response was the stuff of legends. He is reported to have replied, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of Holy Scripture or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, 
I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. And it is a matter of some historical question as to whether he added the next bit or not, but I really like it. He said, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. Paul says to the Ephesian church, be strong in the power of the Lord so that you can stand. And that's exactly what we have Martin Luther saying in his moment of trial as well. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. To the people who could persecute, to the people who could kill, to the people who could excommunicate, I cannot do otherwise but to stand in the face of opposition. Luther stood against evil in the enthroned powers of the church itself. But what was Paul calling on the Ephesian church to stand in the midst of? Verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of heaven in the heavenly places. It's a revolution of perspective for we who live in the West today to be reminded that we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers around us. To be reminded that really it's only in the modern West that the spiritual world has been discarded or even downplayed a little bit. It's only in light of the enlightenment that we have been given this blind spot to the reality that things that are really happening are beyond our five senses. That the most profound things going on are not things that we can measure or reason, but they are spiritual forces at work. Even within the church, we lose sight of this sometimes when we just try to be better people. Rather than encountering the reality that can shake our existence, that there is a God and he's active and he's speaking. We're reminded in God's word today that we are part of a cosmic struggle in this life that God has given us. What are we standing for? He says to stand, what are we standing for? People stand for all kinds of things today, don't they? They take their stands. They stand for trees and whales and clean water. They stand for lower taxes and gun rights and patriotism. They stand against the president. They stand for the president. We could even go right now on our phones and take a stand for something. We can like a post, right? We can share a video with an exclamation point next to it. We can even go to we the people at petitions.whitehouse.gov and we can create a petition that people from around the world could sign up for to really take a stand for something. Of course, there's politics as well. I was asked this week, I read in an article that people taking a stand, often many of us know someone who has left their church because of politics. But the question was turned around, do you know anyone who's left their politics because of something in their church? 
What are we taking a stand for in our lives? As followers of Jesus, we have the power of God, Paul says today, to stand. And therefore, the things that we stand for matter immensely. The convictions that we stand for matter immensely in the framework of this world. And in the succeeding verses, I think Paul gives some fleshing out to what uh, that strength of God's grace is for which and by which we stand. And he gives them the image of the armor of God. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. All of these things are gifts of God's grace. None of these is something that we can achieve. They are all things which we must likewise receive as a gift from our Father in heaven. We can't work our way up to them by doing better things here on earth. Truth, righteousness, faith, salvation, the word of God. Each of these emanates not from something deep within us, but from the very throne and the will of our God in heaven. In an age that puts forth my truth and encourages everyone to speak your truth, it encourages people to create their own reality, right down to choosing their own gender. We believe that the truth of God is from generation to generation. That the one who created the world in the very beginning is the same one who calls us his children today. God reveals that there is one truth and it's revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the word that he has granted to us by his grace. It's a grace to know the truth in a world of virtual reality. Eugene Peterson writes, we live in an advertisement culture in which new products are continuously presented to us. This is a culture of built-in obsolescence. Nothing is designed to last. In order to keep the economy healthy, we are conditioned to respond to the latest as the best. The new car, the latest fashion of clothes, the breakthrough model of computer, the newly published selling, best-selling novel, the just-discovered miracle diet. We have no sooner bought or tried one thing than we are off to the next. Quickly bored, we are easily diverted from whatever we have just purchased or that book we've never quite finished or the church we joined just two months ago. Highly skilled and lavishly budgeted attention getters target us tirelessly. Every latest is overtaken by another latest in dizzying succession. He goes on to observe this. When this novelty mentality seeps into the church, we start looking for the latest God, the latest in worship, the latest in teaching, and the best preacher in town. When religion as novelty spreads, maturity thins out. What is he saying but that we have been duped? In the culture around us, we are constantly being given the new, the new, the new, and assume that it is the best. When God calls us to believe and trust in the truth that he's been revealing for over 2,000 years in Jesus. The eternal truth of God is a gift of grace that empowers us to stand strong in the midst of the storms and the winds and the seas around us. And to stand for the right things 
God's truth allows us to stand without being blown around by every new idea and cultural movement. It protects us from being blown about by conspiracy theories that seem to take on their own sort of truth as they are passed around the internet and the conversation pools of our culture. It's a gift of grace to know the truth. And it's the same, the same is true of righteousness and peace and salvation and faith and the word of God. Each is a gift that cannot be achieved by human means, but it is a gift offered to us to be received from the hand of God. How about this? What do we stand for? We stand for truth, for righteousness, for peace, for faith, for salvation, and for the word of God. All of these were hallmarks of the Reformation in the 16th century from Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and others who set a new course for the church. The truth was that the ultimate authority for life was not the church's teaching or the church's history or even the leadership in the office of the Pope, but that truth comes from the word of God and scripture. The only righteousness on which our humanity can rely is not our righteousness, that we have more good deeds than bad, hopefully when we die, but that the righteousness that we enjoy is that of Jesus Christ, who allowed himself to be crucified for us and for our salvation. True peace in our lives and in our world is not the work of ambassadors or politicians. It's the work of the Prince of Peace and the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of people. Faith is a gift. Even that when we think we have come to our faith, we must understand that it's a gift of the, the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the Reformation caught back onto this with grace. Hebrews tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things that we can't even see. Martin Luther got this. And in his commentary on the book of Romans, he gave this definition and description of faith. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. How about that for a definition of faith? A living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that the believer would stake his or her life on it 1,000 times. This knowledge of and confidence in God's grace makes humanity glad and bold and happy in dealing with God and other creatures. Without compulsion, a person is ready and glad to do good to everyone, to serve everyone, to suffer everything out of love and praise to God who has shown him his grace. Is that the kind of faith that we have received from God? that living, daring confidence in God's grace that allows us to suffer everything and to serve everyone because of faith. Faith is understanding that we are pilgrims on the way, not people who have all the answers ourselves, that we're on a journey that will only culminate fully on the other side of the river as we're brought into the fellowship of God. In the beginning of the Heidelberg Catechism, gives a statement of faith that I bring us back to as an assurance, an affirmation of faith time after time. It asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? How would you answer that question? 
What is your comfort? What is your only comfort in life and in death? And Heidelberg gives language for us to express it as the truth of God. He says, my only comfort in life and in death is knowing that I belong body and soul, both in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood gave himself for me. That's faith. We don't have a plan B. We don't have a fallback. We have one hope and faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he offers. Salvation is our eternal home with God, yes, but it's also about the life that he gives us by his grace here and now in flesh and blood. Peterson goes on to quote G.K. Chesterton and his observation that Christians in relation to the troubles and trials of this world, and they are real. He says, Christians are either crustaceans or vertebrates. Crustaceans have their skeletons on the outside. Vertebrates have their skeletons on the inside. Crustaceans are solid on the outside and soft on the inside. Vertebrates are soft and vulnerable on the outside, but strong and sturdy on the inside. He writes, it's easy to surmise which is the higher form of life. The armor of God is the embodiment, but it's really the internalization of the life of God in the Trinity. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the word of God. When those are on the inside of us, they give us strength to live on the outside. The strength of grace is on the inside because that is the dwelling place of God, the Holy Spirit. And he allows us to stand tall and to stand firm in this world, even amidst the storms of life. But I think it's equally important that we note that we can be strong in the Lord on the inside and yet remain vulnerable and sensitive and empathetic to the wounds and suffering of the people in the world around us because we suffer those same things. We don't suffer them in the same way because of what's on the inside of us. And having confessed the truth that this world is not all there is, that this world is broken, and this world is lost, and we are part of it, we can stand. We can stand strong because of the armor of God that is on the inside of us that allows us to connect with him. Paul knew that we can only stand for the things of God by standing in the power of God and in the grace of God. And so, as my friends from Ghana always say, the pastor is the first one who must be converted by any sermon. The same was true with Paul. And he's asking for their prayers to pray in the spirit. He says, pray for me that I can do what? Stand. He knows that he is coming to the time of trial. And he prays, he asked them to pray that he would be able to stand in the midst of those who might not like him, who might even kill him, but that he might be able to speak the word with boldness. 
Friends, may we stand for the right things, for truth, for righteousness, for peace, for the word of God and salvation. And may we stand not in our own power for we will surely be blown around. May we stand in the power of God and of his spirit. Let us pray.